Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please open my lips, open our hearts. Thank you for your Word. As uh, Psalms say, your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So may the book of James open our eyes and hearts to your will in our lives. And Holy Spirit, please uh, enable us to be more than just hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So uh, James chapter 3 begins with a scary admonition. Don, I think you were in charge of a school system. Did you uh, preach on this passage much? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I mean, this is like, this is serious. You ever lead a Bible study, right? And, and frankly, moms, all moms and dads teach their kids too. And hopefully you're teaching them scripture. And I think it's, it's important to note that, that if there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews, right? If there's confusion coming from the teacher's mouth, it doesn't take much to kind of steer things in the wrong direction. I remember years ago, I used to teach on this passage in Revelation where it says, this is to the church of Laodicea, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, not hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, you make my stomach upset. And I used to say, well, <clears throat> the Lord would rather you either love him or hate him. Right? Hot and cold, doesn't that make sense? And this is, this is what I would teach until... I think it was Ray Vanderlaan's ministry opened my eyes to the uh, <clears throat> geographics of the place where this, uh, the book of Revelation was written to. And he said, you know, Laodicea had two cities close by, Heriopolis and Col uh, Colossae, where we get the letter Colossians from. And Heriopolis was known for its healing springs. Still to this day, it's got a different name, but it's known for its hot springs. They have like Cleopatra's pool. You know, and, um, and then Colossae was at the bottom of a mountain. Now it's just a mound. But at the bottom of a mountain, you had these cool, refreshing springs. And whether the water was piped in through like viaducts or aqueducts or whether it came out of a, a spring, Laodicea was stuck with lukewarm water. So here I was teaching God would want you to hate him or love him. And what the scripture is really saying is I wish you were either healing or I wish you were cool and refreshing. But since you're neither, like God is saying, be good for something, not good for nothing. But this pastor taught it wrong for years, right? Now, maybe it's not damning, right, in that kind of teaching. And yet, you know, in our world today, it's so easy to go off course in teaching. My brother said to me, oh, remember this guy that I used to do uh, missionary work with? Yeah, well, he now teaches things like this. Well, I know what the Bible teaches about sexuality, but our culture says this, and so this is what's right. And he's like... 
You might say, wow, how did he get there? Right? How did he get there? And teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And, and so it's, it's important to look at your teaching and look at your life. But I'm very happy that he follows that with this. Because, you know, when you read James, I don't know about you, but I can feel under the pile. Do you ever read this book and you're like, holy smokes, this guy is like really good and I'm not. And then he goes, we all stumble in many ways. And he put himself in there. I'm like, thank you, Lord, that James admits he stumbles. Because, you know, when I sometimes read this, I'm like, yeah, I stumble in many ways. And it's good to remind ourselves that, okay, James is, is holding up the standard, but he also knows that he falls short. He falls short. He can't fully meet the standard. He says, we all stumble, so he's included. But, but then he goes on and says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect. And he's able to bridle his whole body. What's a bridle? The bit and the bridle, right? It goes in the mouth. The, uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says, don't be like a horse or a mule that needs a bit or a bridle to draw near. You know, so the idea is you, could, you can control your whole body. Tulian Tulvikian, he's uh, Billy Graham's grandson. He had some major falls in the last, you know, six, seven years of his life. And I saw this post by him, and I found it comforting. He said, two things I've learned very acutely over the last six years. One, you are capable of falling and getting lost in ways that are unthinkable to you right now. And two, God's love and forgiveness are big enough to cover the fact that your greatest failures may be ahead of you. That's, that's not a very comforting thought, is it? And yes, it is. And look what he says. So no matter where you go how far you run, or how stubborn your roaming may be, he will never stop coming for you. With infinite amounts of gritty grace, forceful forgiveness, it is, in fact, his joy to come to you. Amen on that one? Yeah, so we all stumble in many ways, and yet there's a bit and a bridle that we don't have in our lives. Earlier in James, he says if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, right? There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, a wise man holdeth his tongue, right? And, and so he doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. That person's religion is worthless. I mean, James is saying what Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and what's coming out of our mouth d d displays who we are. Can I say I think there's two kinds of people for the most part in this world? There are those who think, text, or post before they think, right? And then those who, who think a lot, and then they post, text, or speak, right? I, I wonder it, which one you are. Are you somebody who speaks and then says, oh, why did I say that, right? Or are you somebody who thinks and then you... Bring it out, hopefully, at the proper time. You may still say, why did I say it? But you typically think before you speak. I remember uh, being with a guy, and he was more of a quiet guy. But when I would pull out the stuff that he was thinking about, I was like, man, that's a deep well. That's a deep well. You know, there's so much good stuff in there that just, that just comes out. Some people uh, regret before, and some people regret after. It's important, though, that all of us 
some people need to speak more, some people need to speak less, think about what's coming out of our mouths. It's critical. Look at the ships. They're also so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. It's true, isn't it? I mean, uh, our tongues are so powerful. They can build people up. They can tear people down. They can carry the gospel. They can carry curses. I, I uh, have been exposed to this guy's uh, work for quite some time. John Gottman is, I believe, a sociologist or a psychologist who has spent years, decades, studying relationships, particularly marriage relationships. And he's written a book that many counselors and psychiatrists use, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And he basically stuck people in rooms. And he followed these people for, like, in apartments too, and they had it all wired up, and they're just watching them. And he's discovered that there are some people which he called... Uh, relationship masters and there are other people that are relationship disasters so you've got the masters and disasters and, and he actually can uh, meet with somebody and within 15 minutes of observing the couple say with an 85% confidence whether that marriage will last or not is that crazy and then if he spends more time actually the the stats go up he goes I don't have a lot of friends who want to go out to dinner with me anymore um, and, and what he he also said that there's a magic ratio uh, and this means that for every negative interaction a couple has or in conflict um, a stable and happy marriage has five positive interactions and he said, you know, when I put them in these rooms and stuff, they had 20 to 1. You know, they were very high. And, um, but it's interesting, a 5 to 1 ratio. And, you know, I think this works at home with children. I think it works in the workplace, you know. If you're around somebody who's only saying the things you do wrong, how do you feel about them? You don't really want to be around them so much. It doesn't build closeness, intimacy, confidence. And, and so he actually uh, has come up with like the four horsemen that really take marriages down. And I want you to listen to him talking about one of the four horsemen that takes a marriage down and actually what you can do about it. it has a lot to do with your tongue. Now, contempt is a little bit different than criticism because in contempt, you feel superior to your partner. You're speaking from a higher plane, kind of like I'm on this podium and I'm talking down. Well, if you do that to your partner, you feel... Let's say you feel cleaner than your partner or more punctual or tidier or smarter than your partner. Then you're going to kind of talk down to your partner and the comment that will come out will be this kind of snobby, contemptuous comment, right? Now, how do people get contemptuous? The most common way they do that is by calling their partner names or directly insulting them. And, you know, so you can say, you know, what a jerk. You only talk about yourself. Now, we would like our partners to respond to us by saying something like, John, that's brilliant. You're su such an observant person. You know, thank you for pointing out all the ways in which I'm failing as a human being. Can we have lunch next week so you can tell me more? You know, but unfortunately, people don't respond that way, right? They really wind up getting hurt 
In fact, contempt is our single best predictor of divorce. Now, what is it that the masters are doing that's the alternative for contempt? What is the opposite of disrespect? It is not doing nothing. It is really respect and being proud of the people we love. And what the masters are doing is creating in the relationship a culture of appreciation. They're saying thank you for very small things that their partners are doing. Thanks for picking up the laundry. I enjoyed the conversation at dinner. I watched you playing with the baby last night and it was really beautiful. We had that teacher conference and you know that teacher really intimidates me. You've got a lot of guts. So it's communicating not only affection, but respect, right? That's the culture of appreciation. Now, how do you build that? And what, the way you build it is you start really creating a different habit of mind. A habit of mind where instead of scanning the environment for things to criticize and put down and make yourself superior through putting down other people, you scan the environment for things you can praise and appreciate. And this is as important in, uh, in love relationships as it is in parent-child relationships. Looking for stuff you can appreciate. Catch your partner doing something right. Catch your partner doing something right. Catch your coworkers doing something right. Catch your kids doing something right. Isn't it funny that it's so easy to catch them doing something wrong, isn't it? Right? And we point that out. Now, what was interesting, you might think that to eliminate all negative stuff from relationships is good. But Gottman would say, oh, no, 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 that's not the goal. Like, you need to have negative stuff. Like, we get better through that. Like, it's important to have negative stuff, but the ratio needs to be five to one, right? It can't be all negative. So James talks about the tongue, you know, secular counselors and psychiatrists talk about the importance of the tongue, and we continue to read about the tongue. A tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. I mean, if you've ever tried to control your tongue, you can identify with this, can't you? You're like, dang, why did I say that? Why did I do You know, and yet the gospel message comes across with our tongues. You know, what we say is real. When you were little, did you ever have somebody go, like, Amy likes you, or Billy likes you? Now, you might not have liked Amy or Billy, right? But then when they said that, you're like, he does, she does, right? Something changes inside of you. Something different goes on in, inside of your body. And you know, it's the same way with gossip, isn't it? Like you might have had nothing bad to think about person X or person Y. But then somebody comes up to you and says, did you know or can you believe? And they start telling you something about that. Now, the next time you see them, you got something real inside of your heart going on there that was planted by somebody else's tongue inside of your body. I've heard this line, a good stigma licks a good dogma any day, right? If somebody's got truth, but you won't hear their truth because somebody now has just stigmatized them, 
Right? And, and this is how this fire gets created in our world. Maybe somebody's feelings are hurt. Maybe, you know, they're, they're feeling that you're ostracizing them in some way. And then what do they do? What do you do when somebody hurts you? Do you go to that person? Or do you talk to seven other people about that person? And create this fire inside. You know, what does the Bible say? You know, the Bible says that if a brother or sister sins, go to them in private. You know, the funny thing, I've done this. But what I'll do many times when I do it first is I'll listen and I'll hear that person out. How's it going in their life? And there have been times where I've got something. I've been offended. I need to bring it up. And then I listen to what's going on in the person's life. And I'm thinking, oh, man, was I petty. They're going through all this and this. Unbelievable. Now, many times I still am able to talk about it. But boy, is it in a whole different perspective, isn't it? It's like, yeah, that's just so... I, I, it's so important to to go to somebody when you have stuff and talk to them in person. I remember one time somebody came up to me and they're like, hey, I drive by you all the time and you never wave. I'm lost in thought most of the time in the car or singing or whatever. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, you know. I, I could see people think maybe I ignore other people on the road on purpose. I see, I, I just don't see them. So one time I'm sitting at a light and I'm, I'm waiting at a red light and all of a sudden a car is coming straight at me when it turns green. And then my friend's like, hi. And I was like, bah! Yeah. Oh, I waved that time. And then I look for them every other time. Always. You know. But it's so easy. You know, the good thing is they went to me. And it's like, hey, how come you ignore me? Right? I mean, this is the... Oh, let me just go through these steps real quick. You know, if somebody sins against you, go to them alone. And if that doesn't work, take somebody else. And if that doesn't work and it's a big enough thing, bring, bring somebody from the church with you. This is like Matthew 18 is church discipline. And at the end, they say, treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Now, how do you treat tax collectors and sinners? You love them. You don't hate them. You know, they, they hope that tax collectors and sinners would repent and come back to Jesus. So you, you didn't like, you weren't mean to them, right? You, you wanted them restored. And why is it so hard to tell people and to go to them instead of trying to build a quorum, instead of having your tongue be a negative fire? I thought about this. We're going to do the Bible and bike this year, and I think we're going to ride again from Cumberland, Maryland into Washington, D.C. And can I just say it is one of the coolest things to come out of the woods and then start riding by the monuments, you know? And uh, this is when I uh, watched the bikes as everybody went up to see the Lincoln Memorial. And... I've never had knee pain riding until actually my last ride to Columbus. I had knee pain almost the whole way, couldn't go as fast. And on one of the Bible and bikes, I was with somebody. I'm usually in back and I'm, you know, if anybody, like, I don't let anybody get behind me so that we all kind of stay together as a group. And the person I'm riding with was experiencing knee pain. And they were going slower because of that pain. And I had never really experienced knee pain. And so I would try to motivate them. And... After so many motivation attempts, the person said to me, you know, Pastor Doug, I would appreciate it if you could empathize with me before you try to motivate. And you know what I thought? That is so beautiful. Like, instead of going, Pastor Doug is such a nice guy. You know what I mean? Like, like it, they, they, just went, they just spoke their heart. 
And they help me grow. That's a perfect picture of Matthew 18 and using your tongue properly. And frankly, after writing with knee pain, I would be more empathetic now uh, because of that. But it's, our tongues are so powerful. A pastor uh, down the road here posted something on Facebook. I text him and ask if he could, I could use it. And he goes, oh yeah, I actually got permission from the original guy before I posted it. Uh, but it talks about the power of the tongue. He, he said, at my sister-in-law's funeral last week, Tom Glass made a brief statement. He started off by saying, words matter. He told the story that when he was a teenager, he was living a wild and ungodly life. His dad, Al Gross, was a lead pastor of their church, Miles Strait Baptist Church. Pastor Gross... I, not gross, Pastor Goss had written a letter of resignation to the church because the congregational pressure, because he didn't think he was leading his family well. My sister-in-law, Linda, after the service, cornered Pastor in the foyer of the church before he had submitted a letter of resignation. She, she knew what was going on with, in his life with his son. She felt led by God to encourage Pastor Goss to stay the course. She said, learn all you can while you're going through this so you can help us when we do. And on that day, she cast a God-inspired vision to Pastor Goss to persevere, keep learning and leading his family and the church well. Linda's words mattered Pastor Goss ended up not resigning. He did stay the course. And now his son, Tom, who had gotten into so much trouble as a teen, who is now speaking at my sister-in-law's funeral, is the current lead pastor at the very same church. Pastor Tom told this story at Linda's funeral as an illustration of how God's grace came to his family through Linda. He said, the history of our family changed. And the history of our church and this community changed because of Linda's words. Words matter. For me, this was one of the most powerful moments at Linda's service. And now I wonder, how might my words be so grace-filled and so vision-fueled that they will matter and make a difference in somebody else's life? You know, Jesus talked about us being judged by every utterance that comes out of our mouth. Like words are powerful, aren't they? <clears throat> and they carry the, the, they carry the gospel. I mean, just as gossip can go out, the gospel goes out. And, and when you think about how you heard the gospel, who told the person that you heard the gospel from? Right? Whose life was changed there? Whose life was changed? And you can see it go out. So just as words can be negative, the word and the gospel goes out with power. And there's this whole beautiful tree. I mean, community hope started with words, didn't it? Words and deeds. And it continues on with the gospel message. Well, the scripture goes on and he says, with it, that's our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You know, who is somebody that is human sandpaper to you? That you have a hard time loving? That when you think of them, there's something going on? Think about them being the image of God. This is what James is saying. He goes, you curse people who God made in his image. And from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And he goes in, he says, who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness and wisdom. Because I think there were people there who could expound wisdom, but their lives didn't demonstrate wisdom, right? It's a, it's a talking wisdom, but not an acting wisdom. Jesus knew all about this when he warned us uh, about false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Most recently, there was a very world-famous evangelist, ministry all over the place, but he had a double mind and he had this like secret life and it all came out after his death. And, but if somebody was in the know and somebody was with him, they could see his life. Sometimes when you get celebrity status, you can kind of keep the image up, but behind the scenes, there's, there's all this stuff. And it's a sheep in wolves, or wolves in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit, you will know them. That's a tough word, isn't it? Because I think all of us, if we look at our own lives, we got Romans 7 going on, don't we? The good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I do. Like you, you see that. And, and if all of us would say, oh, I just want to focus on the fruit because, you know, there's many times in my life I would look and I would say, change my tongue. Change, I want to be more fruitful and I would focus so much on the fruit. But the reality is fruit is a byproduct of us focusing on Jesus. Like a tree bears fruit because it basks in the sun and it sucks up the nourishment from the water and the soil. And when you and I abide in Christ, we bear fruit. You could say, Lord, here's my desire to be fruitful, but help me let go of that. Because that's all externals. And help my heart just to want to know you more. And to abide in you and stay connected. And I'll trust you that other people, they can eat the fruit from that. Does that make sense? And he goes on and he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come down from above. Who came down from above? The wisdom personified, Jesus. He is true wisdom. And he came down from above and he, he lives in us. And James talks about two kinds of wisdom here. A wisdom that comes down from above and then an earthly, natural, demonic. Natural could also be translated sensual. Uh, he, he says, for where there's jealousy and selfish ambition exists... There's disorder and every evil thing. So there's two kinds of wisdom. One that only deals with this life, right? I mean, I, I've read things uh, by financial advocates and they'll say, uh, advisors, don't give any money away. Stupidest thing you can do with your money is give it away. And you're like, what? Right, because if it's only this life, Keep it all for yourself, right? Earthly wisdom is just set in this life, right? If it's all about me and my desires, then, then earthly wisdom is if you have this desire, live for this desire, live for this passion. Not in light of eternity, not in light of how God set things up to work. Just live for this thing. Earthly wisdom is, it is all about just 
here and now. But godly wisdom has eternity in mind. So then all of a sudden it's, it's living with a bigger picture. It's when you share the stuff that God has given you, you you're actually blessing the world for eternity. I thought about this, this passage, this parable that Jesus told about a guy who had a farm and his farm produced a bunch of food. And the guy has all this food and he says, what will I do? I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll store up all my grain and my goods. Now, there were people back in the day when Jesus told this parable who were hungry. What should you do when you've got extra? He's like, I know. I'll have earthly wisdom. It'll be all about me. He says, then I will say to myself, I have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you unwise person. This very night, your life will be required of you. And then who will own what you have accumulated? Do you see how earthly wisdom works? It's all set on the here and now. It's all define your life by the here and the now. And not with the bigger picture in mind. Will you pray with me? Lord, I would ask that you would open our hearts to the wisdom that comes down from above. Jesus, you live in us. You live in our hearts by faith. I pray for the people who are listening online, the people who are here. Maybe we look at our lives and we look at our tongue and we, we say, Lord, oh, help me to abide in you. Help me to know you. That the stuff that comes out of this mouth could scan the horizons of, of your good news and, and, and of the goodness in, in the other people I see, the image of God in those around me, and that I could speak words of life to those around me. Maybe there's some that have so much internal conflict going on inside of them that it's hard for them to be a person of peace. And I pray that they could discover the Prince of Peace, you, Lord, that slowly you would plant new seeds into their heart and into their minds. And I, I just want to take a minute, if you have somebody in your heart that, that when you think of them, they just are not a person of peace, just in your heart now, pray for them. Lift, lift them up before the Lord and say, Lord, please, Create in them a clean heart and a right spirit. Pour out into their hearts and into their lives peace. And if it's you, say, Lord, please create in me that clean heart. Pour out into me the knowledge of your presence. You are the Prince of Peace. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.